0: Good morning, I'm Pastor Gillespie, <clears throat> excuse me, <laughs> from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. It's good to have you with us here today for our Congregation of Prayer, a guide for daily meditation and prayer around God's Word. Saturday, December 11th, 2021, and what we do on Saturdays during the school year is we consider tomorrow's Old Testament and Epistle reading and look to... Uh, devotional resources and other resources, our confessions, the writings of Luther, etc., to help us better understand those, or maybe how those readings might be applied, uh, practically speaking, uh, to the life of the Church or to your life. So we'll be doing that today. Let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, All right, we have our memory verse one more time for this week. Let's say it together. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. John 10, 27 through 28. Right, what a beautiful confession of what it means to be sheep of the shepherd's fold, right? We hear his voice, and he knows us. And we follow him, and he gives to us, right? And nothing. Can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. (laughs) All right, let's say our psalm for this week. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights. For his steadfast love endures forever. To the sun to rule over the day. For his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. For his steadfast love endures forever, and brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever, and made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever to him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever, to him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever, and killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever, Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever, and Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever, and gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever a heritage to Israel his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state, for his steadfast love endures forever, and rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. All right, let's listen uh, to a meditation on the psalm, which is appropriate, given that we've prayed it all week. Because the line for his mercy endures forever, appears in each of its 26 verses, Psalm 135, Hebrew 136, combined with Psalm 134, is known in Orthodox worship as the or the Manifold Mercy, together, 134, 135, or 135, 136 for us. In the East, where it is part of the 19th cath- cathisma, it is also an individual matin psalm used on Sundays between the Lord of Light and the Troparion, that's a song, of the Resurrection. In the West, on the other hand, it, is tradition- it was traditionally assigned to Wednesday Vespers, normally in the third tone, with its refrain used as an antiphon. Indeed, this psalm fits any and all contexts, and the litany-like refrain makes it one of the easiest psalms to memorize and sing spontaneously on every, every occasion. All right? We talked about the practical ability. It's been great with the children, right? Because they've known exactly, even those littlest children um, can join in on the continual refrain there. After three introductory verses that call the, for the praise of God, all right, see those there. Um, after those three... One may distinguish three stanzas in the psalm. Stanza 1, verses 4 through 9. All right, there we go. We may think of as the cosmic stanza because it deals with God's work of creation described in the opening verses of Genesis. This stanza is structured on four verbs, or descriptive particles in Hebrew. Does great wonders, all right? We've got that right here, verse 4. Uh, made the heavens, laid out the earth, and made the great lights. Verses 8 and 9 are a continuation of verse 7, the sun to rule by day and the moon and stars to rule by night, and bring the cosmic portion of the psalm to a close, right? So the cosmic portion. You can see New King James um, does set that part as a separate stanza, all right? But creation is the stage on which God makes history. So in stanza 2, verses 10 through 22, so there you go, um, we move from Genesis to Exodus, this we may think of as the history stanza, containing material from the books of Exodus, Numbers, and Joshua. In this stanza, likewise, there is a fourfold series of verbs, again, descriptive particles in Hebrew, this time mainly in pairs, that describe God's redemptive activity for his people. One, he struck down Egypt and brought out Israel. Right? You could see that at the beginning. Overthrew Pharaoh. Or excuse me, I skipped on. Divided the Red Sea and made Israel pass through. Right three overthrew Pharaoh, led his people through the wilderness, and four struck down great kings, slew famous kings, and gave their land as a heritage. All right, So again, a group of four um, particles are verb you know verbs, if you like, in uh, Greek, that describe God's activity in Exodus, right? So we have the cosmic stanza, now the history stanza. Finally, stanza three, Verses 23 to 26 speaks of God's continuing care for his people down through the ages. He is not simply a God of the past, but of us, the present generation of believers. See, us, our, um, to all flesh. The last part of the psalm is is about here and now. He remembered us in our lowliest state, rescued us from our enemies, gives food to all flesh. Thus, you'll see what he did here, Psalm 135 pursues a threefold theme. Right, stanza 1, creation, stanza 2, deliverance, and stanza 3, continued care for the redeemed. In this respect, the triple structure of our psalm is identical with that of the Nicene Creed. God made us, God saved us, God stays and provides for us all, all days until the end. In the Creed, this structure is explicitly, explicitly Trinitarian. One God, the Father Almighty, the Creator, one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life. <clears throat> Thus there seems to be a special propriety in the Eastern custom of chanting the psalm at Sunday Matins in the context of the weekly resurrection gospel. Sunday is the first day of creation, the day of Paschal deliverance, and the day of Pentecost, the pouring out, the pouring of the abiding spirit in the church. In the East, every Sunday is the feast of the Holy Trinity, All right? Do you think of every Sunday as the day of a new creation, the day of the Paschal feast, the Passover lamb crucified, right? And the day of Pentecost, the giving of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, all that happens every Sunday. All right, that's brilliant. Psalm 135 insists literally in every verse that the root of all God's activity in this world, beginning even with the world's creation, is mercy, steadfast love, or chesed, if you prefer Hebrew. <laughs> this mercy is eternal, Elohim, forever. Mercy is the cause and reason of all that God does. He does nothing, absolutely nothing, except as an expression of his steadfast loving kindness. His mercy his chesed. Alright. His mercy stretches out to both extremes of infinity. For his mercy endures forever. Is the palimpset I don't know that word. It's aggravating when you get a word that you don't know. Palimpset. Do you know what that means? Uh palimpset just drives it is a manuscript page, all right? Have you heard that word before, Palimpsest. All right, so, um, for his mercy endures forever is the, is the manuscript page, we'll say, that lies under each line of the Holy Scripture. Thus, too, from the beginning to end of any Orthodox service, the word mercy appears more than any other word, All right. It's the same for us in the West, right? Steadfast love, steadfast loving kindness or mercy. We'll hear that more than any, anything else. Mercy is, oh, excuse me, let's go back. The encounter with God's mercy is the root of all Christian worship. Everything else can, that can be said of God is but an aspect of his mercy. Mercy is the defining explanation of everything that God has revealed of himself. Every orthodox service of worship, from nocturnes to compline, is a polyalion, a celebration of God's sustained and abundant mercy. What we touch, what, or see, or hear, or taste, from the flames that flicker before the icons and the prayers of our voices pour forth, to the billowing incense and in the mystic context of the chalice, all is mercy. Mercy is the explanation of every single thought that God has with respect to us. When we deal with God, everything is mercy. All we ever w- discover of God will be the deepening levels of his great, abundant, overflowing, rich, and endless mercy. For his mercy endures forever is the eternal song of the saints. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, well well said, well said. And anything that is not uh, indicating God's mercy, we exclude (laughs) from Christian worship. There you go. Speaking of uh, mercy, comfort would be a good word, right? So Isaiah chapter 40 is our Old Testament reading tomorrow. One that's quite familiar to you, I'm sure. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry to her. That her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, Cry out, and he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, Lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord shall come with a strong hand, and his arms shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his, with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. All right. So, um, how is this used, right? Obviously, you can hear the allusion to John the Baptist will be uh, one of our central themes tomorrow, right? It's the Sunday of John in, the pri- in prison, right? Go tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, etc. cetera. Um, so we have John preparing the way for Jesus. But we also have, uh, oh, that famous uh, uh, Christmas carol. I guess it's a carol, or is it a hymn? I don't know. Um, Go tell it on the mountain, right? You have that right here in verse 9. This is where it comes from, that Jesus Christ is born, right? Lift up your voice. Get up on the high mountain of Jerusalem. So that's that's the source of that text. Um, obviously, you have more good shepherd uh, allusions here. He will feed like a shepherd. Of course, that's referring to to Jesus' kingship, all right? Um, so we're going to talk about that in a second. And uh, let's see. Oh, and here, his priestly service for us is... Indicated in verse two, where we receive double for our sins, not not double punishment, but we receive more forgiveness, right So the gospel predominates, the good news overwhelms even our own sins. so well, there's a lot of things I could share on this text, but I thought uh, probably the best thing well, there's a lot of things I could share, but I think on the councils in the church, I want to talk about all right uh, because you can see here. Um, how Luther uses—I don't know if I'll bring this— I don't think I can bring this theme out tomorrow, but um, you, you can see how Luther, in, on the councils in the church, he talks about the purpose of a church council, right? And you look at like how John was received, John the Baptist. He um, was received by many, except for the ruling class of the church, right? John's out baptizing at, for the remission of sins, right? And the, the ruling class, the Pharisee scribes, the Sadducees, right? especially the Sadducees, um so, collectively then known as the sanhedrin the ruling council they um were offended by john they were um they thought john was undermining their authority uh, they went out to find out what was going on with this john character um because you can't have a renegade uh, can't have a renegade prophet running around right that uh you don't have control over and this is of course the case with luther uh luther had to deal with this question as well he had if you remember he had sought to call a church council uh, in order to bring reformation to the church. Right, and there is only one church at this point um, in the West. Right, there's of course the Eastern churches and and the other um, smaller churches around, like uh, uh, those in like Ethiopia, for example. But um, you know, in the West, it's primarily the Church of Rome, and Luther is a part of that, and he's seeking reform, and he wants to do it by way of a church council. Problem is. Is that in the in the Roman tradition, um, councils can't err, right? So if the council meets and if it's a valid council, which there are questions as to what that actually means, um, their judgments are are firm, right? Now Lutherans we hold to the first seven ecumenical councils, right? So that's um, all the way through to uh, what was where was the seventh council held? I can't remember. I think it's in Ephesus was the seventh council, right? Uh, like the the fourth council, you know quite well because that's the Council of Nicaea, uh, from which we get the Nicaea-Constantinople Creed, or as we just call it, the Nicene Creed for short. All right, so these councils um, you know quite well. Uh, maybe uh, some of you in your lifetime have experienced a church council, uh, the Second Vatican Council, which was supposedly ecumenical. Um, Rome a lot, uh, invited people from other traditions, right? so Lutherans and Reformed and um, some from the East. We could attend, but we didn't actually get the authority to speak or to vote. <laughs> so, was it really an ecumenical council? Not really. Ah, oh, beautiful snow right now outside. That's accumulating. All right. Um, so we got to, We have to talk about, really, the role of a church council, the role of like churchly authority, right? And specifically, Luther is going to use uh, verse 8. So let's just get back to that. Yeah, this expression right here, he uses this frequently. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Right? And you can imagine then, if you apply that to the council, the council is made up of men um, who are like grass or like the flower that withers and fades. Right, The only thing that can persist into eternity is the word of God. All right. So, 10th, Luther writes, a council has the power to institute some ceremonies, provided first that they do not strengthen the bishop's tyranny, second, that they are useful and profitable to the people and show fine orderly discipline and conduct. Thus, it is necessary, for example, to have certain days and also places where one can assemble, also certain hours for preaching and for the public administration of the sacraments, for praying, singing, praising, and thanking God, etc. As St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, all things should be done decently and in order. Such items do not serve the bishop's tyranny, but only the people's need, profit, and order. In summary, these must and cannot be dispensed with if the church is to survive. All right. So here you're thinking of um, the rites and rituals of the church, um including the days of the year, luther says it's it's fitting for the church to gather together as as a, an ecumenical council to determine, say the date of Christmas, right when do we celebrate Christmas, when do we celebrate Easter right and there's consensus among um not only that when those days are celebrated but that they are celebrated
1: know right?
0: and this is good for order for consistency, so people know when to come to church, and of course, like everything else um that's set up for good order in the church. But, Luther writes, if someone is occasionally hindered by some emergency sickness or whatever it may be from observing this, it need not be sin, for it is done for his benefit and not for the bishops. If he is a Christian, he thereby will not harm himself. What difference does it make to God if someone does not want to belong to such a group or participate in this way? Everyone will find out for himself. In summary, he who is a Christian is not bound to such order. He would rather um, do it then let it go if he is not forced into it. Here, therefore, no law can be laid down for him. He would want to do and would prefer to do much more uh, than such a law demands. But he who haughtily, proudly, and willfully despises it, let him go his way, for such a person will not, will also despise a higher law, be it divine or human. All right? So you were not <laughs> Luther always He, he uh, runs this knife's edge. We're not bound to do these things. We have Christian freedom. Um, but if we willfully despise them, we run the risk um, of despising far more, right? So, like, for example, um, this has this came up with COVID. If we reject the gathering together as Christians on, on the Sabbath day to hear God's word and receive his gifts, um, if we reject the need to do that, right? So we, you've probably heard this said, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. I can watch it online or something. Um, well, now, there's some truth to that. Of course, you can't receive the sacrament over the internet, so, so that's, it's already faulty in that regard. Um, but also, uh, experience has shown <laughs> that what Luther says here is true, that those who despise the regular gathering together of God around his word will end up despising um, his word altogether. Right? So they say that they can be a Christian without going to church, and yet they don't remain Christian for very long, and that they don't actually believe, trust, and even know and understand God's word. Because they, in effect, by despising the preaching of His Word, have despised His Word altogether, right? And it, it sometimes it takes some time, um, but you'll see it. Somebody lapses from attendance in church, and sooner or later they end up not attending ever or at all, um, and then you'll find uh, their name in the paper, you know, having done something that uh, is not fitting, you know, for those who trust in Christ. All right, so Luther's right about that, you know, uh, like a kind of a slippery slope argument, I suppose. Now, perhaps you might say here, now we're getting to the text, what do you finally make or want to make of the councils if you clip them so close? At that rate, a pastor, indeed a schoolteacher, to save nothing of parents, would have greater power over his pupils than a council has over his church. I answer, do you think then that the offices of the pastor and the schoolteacher are so low that they cannot be compared with the councils? How could one assemble a council if there were no pastors or bishops? How could we get pastors if there were no schools? I am speaking of the school teachers who instruct the children and youth not only in the arts, but also train them in Christian doctrine and faithfully impress it upon them. I also speak in the same manner of pastors who teach God's word in faithfulness and purity. For I can easily prove that the poor, insignificant pastor at Hippo, St. Augustine, taught more than all the councils to say nothing of uh, the most holy popes in Rome, whom I fear to mention. I will go further than that. There is more in the Children's Creed, that's the Apostles' Creed, than in all the councils. The Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments also teach more than all the councils. Moreover, they not only teach, but also guard against anything new that opposes the ancient doctrine. For heaven's sake, how the papists will pluck these words of mine from their context, shout them to bits, torture them to death, and prove them illogical. But meanwhile, they will not mention the reasons I have spoken in this manner. For they are pious and honest people sarcasm, um, who cannot do anything but callimate and lie, something I should indeed be afraid of. <laughs> but may God forgive me, I cannot really do I really cannot do it. I would rather let them go on with their slander and their lives. But let us, you and me, discuss this subject together. <laughs> I love Luther's dialogue here. What then can a council do, or what is its task? Right, so that we could apply this to the synod. What's the purpose of um, the district or the synod, for example? Listen yourself to their own words. Anathematasimus is the name of their office. We condemn. Indeed, they, they speak even more humbly and do not say we condemn, but anathematasit, anathematasit ecclesia, the Holy Christian Church condemns. The council's condemnation would not terrify me, but the Holy Church's condemnation would slay me in an instant because the man of the man who says, I am with you always to the close of the age. Oh, this man's condemnation is not to be endured but the councils since they appeal to the holy christian church as the true and supreme judge on earth testify that they cannot judge according to their own discretion but that the church which preaches believes and confesses holy scripture is the judge as we shall hear just as a thief or a murderer would be secure from the judge as far as the person is concerned but the law but law and country are united in the judge their servant and of these two he must be afraid all right so again think of john john's um, a renegade. I mean, he's outside the norm. But the question ought to have been, in regards to John by um, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, was John preaching God's word? And if he was, leave him alone. Was he faithfully um, fulfilling the office of prophet? If he was, leave him alone, right? Let him be. Um, this is ultimately uh, the counsel that is given from the sanhedrin, one a member of the Sanhedrin, in regards to Jesus right in John we read this in John's gospel you know after the healing of um, was it was it the blind man yeah the blind man in the synagogue right and the council is ultimately uh, to leave him alone and if he's for god his work is is valid if he's against god god will strike him down just leave him alone right uh, that's kind of a renegade position by a church council usually church councils are much more happy to just condemn 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 accuse bring judgment all right so listen to what he says about these councils A council, then, is nothing but a consistory, a royal court, a supreme court, or the like, in which the judges, after hearing the parties, pronounce sentence, but with this humility, for the sake of the law, that is, our office is anathematizare, to condemn, but not according to our whim or will, or a newly invented law, but according to the ancient law, which is acknowledged as the law throughout the entire empire. Thus, a council condemns a heretic, not according to its own discretion, but according to the law of the empire, that is, according to Holy Scripture, which they confess to be the law of the Holy Church. Such law, empire, and judge must be, surely be feared on pain of eternal damnation. This law is God's word, the empire is God's church, and the judge is the official or servant of both. All right? But not only the council, listen to this, but every pastor and school teacher is also the servant or judge of this law and empire. Moreover, a council cannot administer the judicial office forever without intermission for the bishops cannot forever remain assembled together, but must gather only in times of certain emergencies and then anathematize or be judges. Thus, if an Arius in Alexandria grows too strong for his pastor or bishop, attracts the people and also urges other pastors and people in the country to join him, this is an actual example, <laughs> so that pastor in Alexandria is defeated and his judicial office can no longer defend the law of the empire, that is, the true Christian faith. In such an emergency, and at such time, a time, the other pastors and bishops should rally with all their might around the pastor in Alexandria and help defend the true faith against Arius and condemn Arius to save the others, so that this misery does not get the upper hand. And if the pastors are unable to come, the pious emperor Constantine, he's saying should, but it actually happened, right, uh, should add his power to help assemble the bishops. It is just like when a fire breaks out. If the man of the house cannot extinguish it alone, all the neighbors should hurry over and help quench it. And if they do not hurry over, the government should help and command that they must gather to anathematize or condemn the fire in order to save the other houses. So when is it appropriate for, like, say, Synod to gather um, or or the district to gather its pastors to gather in council or for us Christians to gather with other Christians um, in some sort of public gathering? it's when there's time of emergency and when the threat um, is, is great, right? Actually, that would be now. Because, uh, and we've seen this happen. Uh, for example, uh, our pastors in Minnesota South um, gathered with Roman Catholic um, priests, and bishops, right? So our district president was with the Roman Catholic bishops and they together actually um, pressed lawsuit against the government of Minnesota <laughs> in order to uh, force the government's hand to reopen um, because of the the right of religious liberty um, that our country affords. all right. So that was a council of sorts, um, and because there was a time of great need where the state had risen to such authoritarian um, status that um, it was prohibiting the gathering of Christians together around Christ, God's word and sacrament, right? So this time is now, we've seen this with these kind of emergencies. but it, we can't do that all the time. So most of the time, it's the local pastor uh, or the local school teachers, that are applying God's word of law, his commands, the scriptures, um, to our daily life. Got it? All right. Um, all right, let me read a little bit more. Yeah, this is going a little long, but that's okay. Maybe you haven't read on the councils in the church. It's really a great work. Thus, the council is the great servant or judge in this empire and law. Yet when the emergency has passed, it has done its duty. Just as in temporal government, the supreme great judges have to help when the lower secondary courts prove too weak to cope with an evil, until the case is at last brought before the highest, greatest court, the Diet, which cannot meet forever either, but must adjourn after the emergency is over and again leave matters to the lower courts. Right? So this is how our Supreme Court works. At the Diet, however, it happens that occasionally new or additional laws have to be enacted, or that old laws have to be amended, improved, or even abolished. Now that's different than ours. Our our courts don't establish law, Hmm, supposedly. That's the uh, role of the Congress, but regardless. Justice cannot forever be administered according to an eternal law, for this is a temporal government which rules over temporal, changeable, and very vari- variable things. Therefore, the laws that are made for these changeable things must also change. If that for which the law was made no longer exists, then the law no longer represents anything, just as the city of Rome no longer has institutions and ways of life it, had ha- it has had before, and therefore the laws that were passed for these are also dead and invalid. Transient things have transient laws, so you can think about. Um, there's there's many laws. I think some of these are still in the books in many of our states um, in regards to uh, horses, right? And the buying and selling and uh, the use of horses and where they can be ridden and all this sort of stuff. It's like, well, we don't ride horses anymore. Those laws are no longer um, valid or applicable to us. And sometimes they're repealed. Some usually they just get set aside and they stay on the books, but nobody really uses them. Um, we do have laws. Um, regards to divorce that had to be repealed because we wanted to allow people to have more of divorce in our country, all right. Um, and we also had laws against intermarriage, um, which I do think is abhorrent that that our you know we prevented the marriage uh, of people from from different ethnicities. But so it was. So that was transient, all right. All right. Now, but listen to this. But in this empire of the church, the rule is quote Isaiah forty verse eight: the word of our God will stand forever. One has to live according to it and refrain from creating new or different words of God and from establishing new or indifferent articles of faith. Right? The church cannot change because the word of God endures forever. That is why pastors and school teachers are the lowly but daily permanent eternal judges who anathematize without interruption, that is, fend off the devil in his raging. A council, being a great judge, must make old, great, pious rascals or kill them, but it cannot produce any others a pastor and a school teacher deal with the with small young rascals <laughs> and constantly train new people to become bishops and councils whenever it is necessary a council prunes the large limbs from the tree or e- extra why do they use these words i've never heard of extrapates extrapates you know that word uh extrapate is uh, to eradicate or destroy completely from ex and st- stirps a stem. All right, so extirpates evil trees, so eradicates them entirely. But a pastor and a school teacher plant and cultivate young trees and useful shrubs in the garden. Oh, they have a precious office and task, and they are the church's richest jewels. They preserve the church. Therefore, the lords should do their part to preserve pastors and schools. For if indeed we cannot have councils, the parishes and schools, small as they are, are eternal and useful councils. Wow, that's a brilliant paragraph. All right, I think I need to go. Um, And I had posted something from this work on Facebook, uh, but I'm going to change it. I'm going to post that. (laughs) So go do that before I forget. Right, this is beautiful. All right, let's see here. Where's my wall? There it is. Um, Now there's a, oh, I see on Facebook, there's a question from somebody who's watching right now. So um, the question is, what year is this work? I think it's 1541 if I'm, I'm pretty. Cr- right, let me scroll back to the beginning. I mean, I'm 140 pages in. So, Luther he's not always brief. This is incredible work, though. All right, on the councils in the church. Oh, 1539, 1539. All right. So, I mean, th- there was there's a lot of historic information going along here. He had just written a small called articles um, in 1538, right, and he was hoping for a council. Um, they had councils, but they hadn't invited the Lutherans to it. And uh, so he's been working at length on the kind of like the eternal nature of the church. All right, so there you go on the councils and the church. But again, the key is the word of God of our God stands forever. The word of our of our God stands forever. Right, and we miss this when it comes to judgment in the church. Everything is judged according to the word of God. And nothing thus can be um, removed that is given by God's word, um, but much can be removed if it is not actually given in God's word without sin, right, although we need to be hesitant as he reminds us of, um, so that we don't remove that which is actually useful for learning all right, very good, uh speaking of judgment again, uh, we have to test uh, I, maybe this is a running theme, it would be an interesting sermon I don't know if this if this will come out in time, but um you know, Jesus, when he sends John's disciples back to John, who's in prison, he says, go and tell John what you see and, and hear, right? Um, and so he is providing for his disciples, uh, for John's disciples, kind of the diagnostic on how to test the spirits. Right? Test You test Jesus's words, and are they confirmed by what he says? Does Jesus do what he says? Is he Is God's promise fulfilled in Jesus? That's the question, right? There's no other basis by which to judge whether Jesus um, is the Savior Messiah, uh, just the same as there's no other real criteria to judge whether John is God's prophet. You have to listen to what he says and look at what he's doing, right? Uh, it's confirmed um, with one's ears and uh, with sight, okay? So that's interesting, uh, because it's the same thing for us as a church when you um, show up at church, you can actually judge whether or not the congregation um, that you're visiting that day, say if it's not your own, or the one that you're a member of, is it Christ's church? Well, how can you determine that? Do they say what God has given them to say? Do Is the preaching and teaching according to God's word? Do they administer the sacraments given by God according to his institution? If they do, it's Christ church. That's it, right? Uh, as far as, like, What order of service they use or how they sing? Well, that's not the question. But do they faithfully confess God's word, right? Does the order of service they use deliver the goods, you know, that Christ would have them give? Those are the questions that one might ask, right? And so there's that identity question with John and Jesus. Maybe that's a good way to kind of connect the councils in the church to it. All right. Our epistle tomorrow is 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful, to the point. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. (laughs) Speaking of counsels. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But it is he who judges me, or he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will bring both to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God, all right so here Paul is uh, indicating the source of his good conscience, right he has a he has he knows of nothing against him he probably knows what a lot of people have said about him, right but he holds he he knows of nothing against him contrary to God's word, right um presumably if someone had expressed to to Paul you know what you've preached or taught is contrary to his word either. Um, Paul was able to prov- provide correction or vice versa. The person who brought this up to Paul, he repented for the forgiveness of sins and thus nothing is being held against him by Jesus. Yeah, still snowing. Nice. Um, so, And his role is not to judge himself um, and he's not judged by any human court. He's ultimately only judged by God's word, the word that endures uh, forever. So you can see the connections here uh, between everything we've been reading. Uh, for this, See, I could have read on the freedom of the Christian. Is that what I want to do? Um, I'm not sure. Is that what I was going to read for you? (laughs) I had something lined up here for you. Yeah, I was going to read this too, because we're talking about the freedom of the Christian. Uh, But alternatively, I could do, yeah, let's do that. All right, so Luther, um, this is the 500th anniversary of his writing on the freedom of a Christian, 1521, so it's quite early, Um, but it's really brilliant. All right. So first, he he kind of, I'm not going to read this for you, but he explains how um, Christ Jesus is both king and priest, right? After the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews 6 and 7, right? So he's both king and priest. He's, he's, as he says here, by his birthright, obtained these two prerogatives. But here's the key. So he imparts them to and shares them with everyone who believes in him according to the law of the above-mentioned marriage, according to which. Uh, the wife owns whatever belongs to the husband, right? So we being the bride of Christ, we receive everything that is his, which makes us kings and makes us priests as well. Hence, all of us who believe in Christ are priests and kings in Christ. As First Peter 2 says, you are a chosen race, God's own people, a royal priesthood, a priestly kingdom, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Right? Isn't that brilliant? So we're priests and kings because we are the bride of Christ. Uh, you know, you marry the king, you end up being The queen, right? That's how it works. And everything that is his is yours. If he dies, the kingdom's yours, right? So Luther writes, let me hold on one second. Let me double check what I wanted to do here. Yeah. I want to make sure I get to the part that I want to get to. The nature of the priesthood and kingship is something like this First, with respect to kingship, every Christian is by faith so exalted above all things that by virtue of spiritual power, he is Lord of all things without exception, so that nothing can do him any harm. As a matter of fact, all things are made subject to him and are compelled to serve him in obtaining salvation. Accordingly, Paul says in Romans 8, all things work together for good for the elect. And in 1 Corinthians 3, all things are yours, whether life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ. This is not to say that every Christian is placed over all things to have and control them by physical power, a madness with which some churchmen are afflicted, for such power belongs to kings, princes, and other men on earth. Our ordinary experience in life shows us that we are subjected to all, suffer many things, and even die. As a matter of fact, the more Christian a man is, the more evils, sufferings, and deaths he must endure. As we see in Christ the firstborn prince himself, and in all his brethren, the saints. The power of which we speak is spiritual. It rules in the midst of enemies, and is powerful in the midst of oppression. This means nothing else than uh, power is made perfect in weakness and that in all things I can find profit towards salvation, so that the cross and death itself are compelled to serve me and to work together with me for my salvation. This is indeed a splendid privilege and hard to attain, a truly omnipotent power, a spiritual dominion in which there is nothing so good and nothing so evil that it is that it shall work together for but that it shall work together for good for me, if only I believe. Yes, since faith alone suffices for salvation, I need nothing except exercising the power and dominion of its own liberty. Lo, this is the inestimable power and liberty of Christians. Then Luther continues, Not only are we the freest of kings, but we are also priests forever, which is far more excellent than being kings. For as priests, we are worthy to appear before God to pray for others and to teach one another divine things. These are the functions of priests, and they cannot be granted to any unbeliever. Thus, Christ has made it possible for us, provided we believe in him, to be not only his brethren, co-heirs, and fellow kings, but also his fellow priests. Therefore, we may boldly come into the presence of God in the spirit of faith and cry, Abba, Father, pray for one another and do all things which we see done and foreshadowed in the outer and visible works of the priests. All right, let me skip to where he uses our text. All right, you will ask, if all who are in church are priests, How do these whom we call priests differ from laymen? All right, so what's the difference between pastor and and congregation? I answer, injustice is done, those words, priest, cleric, spiritual, ecclesiastic, when they are transferred from all Christians to those who are now by a mischievous usage called ecclesiastics. Holy Scripture makes no distinction between them, although it, it gives the name ministers, servants, and stewards to those who are now proudly called popes, bishops, and lords and who should accordingly to the ministry of the word serve others and teach them the faith of Christ and the freedom of believers. Although we are equally priests, we cannot all publicly minister and teach. We ought not do so even if if we could. Paul writes accordingly in 1 Corinthians 4, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. That stewardship, however, has not been deployed into so great a display of power and so terrible a tyranny that no heathen empire or other earthly power can be compared with it, just as if laymen were not also Christians. Through this perversion, the knowledge of Christian grace, faith, liberty, and of Christ himself has altogether perished, and its place has been taken by an unbearable bondage of human works and laws until we have become, as Lamentations of Jeremiah says, say servants of the vilest men of earth who abuse our misfortune to serve only their base and shameless will. All right. So that's specifically Luther's context where the priests have really taken on much more authority and co-opted the authority that's given to every Christian. But to return to our purpose, I believe that it has now become clear that it is not enough, or in any sense, Christian, to preach the works, life, and words of Christ as historic facts, as if the knowledge of these would suffice for the conduct of life. Yet this is the fashion among those who must today be regarded as our best preachers. Far less is it sufficient, or Christian, to say nothing at all about Christ and to teach instead the laws of men and decrees of fathers. Now, there are not a few who preach Christ and read about him, that they may move men's affections to sympathy with Christ, to anger against the Jews, and such childish and effeminate nonsense. Here's the key phrase. Rather ought Christ to be preached to the end, that faith in him may be established, that he may not only be Christ, but be Christ for you and me. And that which is said of him and is denoted in his name, may be effectual in us. Such faith is produced and preserved in us by preaching why Christ came, what he uh, brought and bestowed, what benefit it is to us to accept him. This is done when Christian liberty, which he bestows, is rightly taught, and we are told in what way we we Christians are all kings and priests, and therefore lords of all, and may firmly believe that whatever we have done is pleasing and acceptable in his sight, as I have already said. Yeah, so I mean, there's a special benefit, I suppose, to being a pastor of a congregation. I mean, my work, my priestly work, um, is public, uh, and I'm compensated for it. I can support my family with it, right? Um, but that's really the only distinction. Um, you are equally capable of reading God's word, of teaching it to your children, to your family, to your spouse, um, of praying in in our Lord's name uh, for. For yourself and for any anyone and anybody in need, right? You have that same authority. It's not specially given to me as pastor uh, or the church. I have a special duty to pray for you, I suppose. But you see, um, and and the pastor is not the lord of the church; he's the servant of the church, right? Nor is the congregation um, the lord of the pastor either. But they are there to serve the pastor. We serve one another, right? In love, uh, we only have one lord, and that's Jesus. All right, so good order and all of that can. Um, sometimes be well often be turned into um, authoritarian or tyranny and uh, that's what's being warned against here right we're stewards and it's only required that we be found faithful and how are we to be found faithful how would you know such a thing according to god's word right because the word of of god endures forever all right let's confess our catechism for this week third our second petition thy kingdom come what does this mean The kingdom of God certainly comes by itself without our prayer, but we pray in this petition that it may come to us also. How does God's kingdom come? God's kingdom comes when our Heavenly Father gives us His Holy Spirit, so that by His grace we believe His Holy Word and lead godly lives here in time and there in eternity. Third petition, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does this mean? The good and gracious will of God is done even without our prayer, but we pray in this petition that it may be done among us also. How is God's will done? God's will is done when he breaks and hinders every evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world, and our sinful nature, which do not want us to hallow God's name or let his kingdom come, and when he strengthens and keeps us firm in his word and faith until we die. This is his good and gracious will. We pray. Heavenly Father, your kingdom comes to us wherever the gospel of Jesus is preached and his sacraments are administered. Through these gifts you give us your Holy Spirit and create faith in our hearts. We give thanks to you for these gifts. We give thanks to you for the promise that Jesus will come again in glory on the last day to give us all the fullness of his kingdom. Forgive us for failing to pray for the coming of your kingdom. By your word and spirit, reign in our hearts and in your church. Through the promises of the gospel, continue to give us your Holy Spirit so that by your grace we believe your holy word and lead godly lives here in time and forever after in eternity. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Heavenly Father, your good and gracious will is to keep and preserve us in the true faith. Your good and gracious will is done without our prayer and does not depend upon us. For this we give you thanks. Forgive us for not trusting that you promised to preserve us in Christ. Break and hinder every evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world, and our sinful nature, which do not want us to hallow your name or let your kingdom come. Strengthen and keep us firm in your word and faith until we die. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Pray the Collect for this week. Stir up our hearts, O Lord, to make ready the way of your only begotten Son, that by his coming we may be enabled to serve you with pure minds. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We pray this day for faithfulness to the end, for the renewal of those who are withering in the faith or have fallen away, for pastors as they prepare to administer Christ's holy gifts, and for receptive hearts and minds on the Lord's day. We pray today with Lisa and Michael who celebrate their birthday. We keep the households of our church in our prayers, especially Linda and Monty, Wayne and Mary, Doug and Nicole, the Manzics, the Vims, and Vicky. We give thanks uh, to God for the birth of Dorothea Larson. and We uh, ask the Lord keep Dorothea safe until she's brought to the waters of holy baptism. Pray for those who are ill, receiving treatment or recovering, especially Marcella, Kelsey, Frank, Amanda, Dan, Timothy, Janice, and Colin, Ken, Norman, Sandy, Kathy, Jim, and Elaine, and Mike. Pray for our homebound, Bev, David, Roy, Willis, Mickey, and Paul. Pray for our mission of the month, a place of refuge. We ask the Lord to give us victory over temptations and for safekeeping from the devil's plots. We pray um, for those who are grieving the death of loved ones, especially those grieving the death of Roger, Rhonda, Dionysio, and Wallace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. All right, we sing our hymn one more time. Here we go. And
1: he came and asked him, oh. Precious food from heaven, pledge of peace here given. Manna that will know heartache, souls that they may flow. Come
0: There's our Congregation of Prayer for today, Saturday, uh, December 11th. I went a little bit long today, but uh, yeah, On the Councils in the Church, Volume 41 of Luther's Works. Grab it in church if you need and borrow that. Uh, It'd be a great book to read. Bring up lots of questions, lots of ways to think about uh, the role of churchly authority, um, maybe in a way that we haven't really thought through, right? Um, And where we actually ought to expect our district or synod to uh, intervene, right? Uh, But when we also really don't need them to. And when it's our job to be the ones uh, who condemn or who uh, accuse of wrongdoing, right? Going against God's word, namely. And uh, that would be those within the church or without as well. All right. um, So I guess that's it. So we'll see you tomorrow morning at 9.30 a.m. for divine service, uh, Advent 3. Yep. And uh, we'll see you then. Lord be with you all today and stay safe, especially if you have to go out on the roads.
1: All right.